welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 3, Dinhianicus and the Art of Mythic Cartography. Episode 11, Tuchvark Edina Part 3, A Game of Fickle. A causeway over Moen Lovriga. The touch of the wind was cold. It fingered his cloak, lifting the edges, finding the fissures between the folds of the wool. He shivered. But he didn't move to pull the mantle further about him. He must not move. He must not be seen hiding there among the reeds. It was full dark. A crescent moon had long gone, faded beyond a misted horizon. And yet the air was silvered, as if a starlit frost brightened the air. Then they were there, voices, many voices. Yuckard's steward froze into shadow. He must not move. He must not be seen. He, Rector, had been present when his king, when Yuckard, had won the fiddle game. He had seen Mither's face when he had accepted that outrageous stake, to take upon himself four tasks. The removal of stones from the plain of Meath, rushes over Tevra, a wood over Brefni, and the creation of a causeway on Moen Lavriga. The causeway. That was the task that Mither feared. The steward knew it, had seen it clearly. Oh, Mither had stood there untroubled, as fine and fair a man as ever. But Rector was a steward, ever ready to meet the needs of a lord. He could read a man at will, and, and he'd read Mither in that moment, had seen the sag of his shoulders, had noticed the grim set of his mouth. Mither had accepted the task, but asked that no one should witness the work, demanded that all should stay inside while the labour lasted, the causeway constructed. Yuckett had agreed, but he had secretly sent his own steward to wait and watch, watch and wait. And so here he was, and there was Mither on the marshy plain. But not alone. There were voices, many voices, and the lowing, groaning of huge and heavy oxen. It seemed to him, as he hid among the tall reeds, as though all the men in the world had come to that boggy place. The light was growing, glowing. It seemed to arise like a mist from the men themselves. Yes, he could see clearly now. There was Mither in his purple tunic, his yellow hair to the edge of his shoulder. He watched as Mither's people readied themselves for work, stripping off their fine tunics and making them into a shimmering mound at Mither's feet. And then the great work began. It seemed it was an entire forest that the great oxen hauled into that bog. Tree followed tree. Birch after birch, oak after oak, was chopped and shaped into pole and plank, Man and beast, muscles straining to the snapping point, drew them, dragged them into the place, sliding painfully on the slippery edges. Oh, it made a mighty tumult indeed. Rector watched him wonder, awed by the power of the beautiful beasts, 
with the strength and skill of the men as they laid the rails and the great oaken laths. He noted carefully the way the oxen were yoked at the neck rather than at the forehead, oh, so much better than the usual custom of his people. This he would remember. He admired the speed and deftness with which they packed the wooden causeway with clay and gravel, making it stable. Yet even as he watched the road take shape, the dreadful din of the work seemed to alter, and within the maelstrom of the discord he began to make out chanted words, keeping man and beast together. He listened, and the song became clearer. Rector knew that the words were the road itself, a work song of shaping. We have set our hands to this task, hold hard. If we have taken from the cauldron greater than we can grasp, hold hard. If we are at fault, then the fault will not be ours, hold hard. As the muscle-rippled oxen hold hard, so will we. Though the burden of payment is heavy, we have set our hand on this bride-price road, whether it is that we gain or we lose. And in the silver mist chant, the road grew longer, stronger. This the steward knew must be a work of great magic, a secret sight that he might never again glimpse. But even as he strained to hear the song more clearly, to see the road take shape before his eyes, it came to him that there was another song, an undercurrent in the river flow of the chanted sounds, and that there were darker words, crimson-stained. Lay the wood to the ground, lay it down. Though the hands of the host be raw and red, lay it down. Though we groan under this bloody stake, we lay the wood down, our feet dragging in the bog, our craftsmen heavy-limbed, stumbling in the rush-rimmed mud, shielding hands as they struggle, we lay the wood down. It is a heavy price to pay for a single woman. It is a crooked bridge to cross this hardship, even for one of our own. For that woman has chosen a king who sleeps, whose eyes are shut to an ending in slaughter, and for whom we build in uncertain times, as he builds for himself. Only sadness rushes over Tethfer, stones from Meath, trees over Brefni. What will be gained, and what lost? The steward stood up, staring into the darkness. And now he understood. This was no uncanny host, hands set to a magical task. Here was a company, work-worn and wearied almost to death, with a burdensome task, which would at the last be flawed and lost to time. His standing was heard by Mither, who turned and silently regarded the steward. For a long moment they stared at each other, and Rector knew that from then on the two peoples might be allies or enemies, but that their worlds would never again converge. At last we're ready to tell the... <laughs> 
third and final part of the story of the wing of Aideen. Yes, and of course we have saved the best till last. Oh, yes. There are so many interesting features to this final part of the story, but most of all, most excitingly for us, yeah. we actually have a very unusual matchup between story and archaeology, actual physical archaeology. And it's local. Exactly, of course it is. <laughs> but I think, you know, at this point it would be a good idea to just recap the story. It's exactly. been a long time. Yes, this is the story so far. <laughs> so if we recap, you get Aideen, who's the most beautiful woman in Ireland, of and she was originally chosen to be the second wife of Mither. Yes. However, Fulmnacht, his first wife, this sounds like one of those uh, things you're on television. Yeah, this is, you know, previously on, uh, on previous West Enders. Yes. <laughs> what? West Enders. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. Let me go back. <laughs> However, Fulmnacht, his first wife, is jealous and so turns Aideen into a purple fly with some miraculous healing powers. Naturally. Then she calls up a great big magical storm and blows her away. When she falls into the golden goblet of the wife of Adar, champion of Ireland, mm -hmm. and she gets swallowed. And then in the second part, we read about how that swallowing turned into a pregnancy, which turned into, guess what, the most beautiful girl in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And Aideen begins her still second life. Aideen. Of course she's still called Aideen. She's always called Aideen. Um, and this time she is wooed and won by the High King of all Ireland, uh, King Yochid Arav. Uh, but of course, Yochid's younger brother, Alil the Splendid Smith, falls in love with Aideen, but he doesn't do anything about it. He gets sick to the point of death. She agrees to um, <clears throat> make him better, cure him. Mm -hmm -hmm. Uh, but each time she goes to meet with him, it's a, a doppelganger instead, uh, who eventually reveals himself to be Mither. Um, and uh, he arranges that Alil gets cured without Aideen having to sleep with them. And Aideen does agree that she will go back with Mither if her husband allows it. <laughs> Interesting story. Yeah. <laughs> so that was last time. So we begin part three with a situation where Aideen, well, she's got effectively, she's got two husbands. Yes. One from her first incarnation mm -hmm. and one from her second. Poor I'm not sure whether I like the idea of serial husbands. <laughs> well, you know, some would know better than most. I would be but... quiet. <laughs> Either way, both of Aideen's husbands are determined to hang on to her. Um, but there are also some interesting changes in the setting of this part of the story. Um, it's moved from what had previously been very firmly set in the Midlands or in the northeast of Ireland, up in Ulster. Um, it's now shifted to the seat of Tara, of the place of the High Kings of Ireland. Which never really existed in terms of uh, an actuality no. of somewhere where the King of Ireland's that is a bit like sort of Arthur's Camelot. It is rather like, yeah, it is a bit like. And then everyone went to Camelot, even yeah. though it was a silly place. Yeah, because it's only a cutout. Yes. <laughs> but what I think we're getting at, if we can be serious for a moment, now. is that it's 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 a storyteller setting it exactly. goes to now. Yes. Um, the conceit of it being a local story is just... That's just gone out just the vanished. window, yeah. Yeah, it does begin with a wonderfully colourful description of another world warrior, doesn't it? This is Mither again. Oh, yes, it is. And it's very similar to uh, the way that we began the last episode, uh, the appearance of Mither at Inverkeekfana, where Aideen and all of her uh, handmaidens were bathing. Um, yeah. It's a bit of a shorter description here. But Mither has changed his tune. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, this time he has a purple tunic mm. about him and golden yellow hair on him to the edge of his shoulders. Yeah, but what is, I think, especially interesting about this description is that he once again has this five-pointed spear in his right hand, um, which I think I mentioned last time and how I found that really reminiscent of the fishing spear that's, an, it's a Neolithic, I think, fishing spear in the National Museum. Yeah. Uh, so once again, I think it's it looks almost like this identifies him as Mither. He's got that five-pointed spear in his right hand and a shield with golden I bosses and gems in the left particularly hand. interesting. Yeah. He's still reminding me of Mananan. Yes. That's another matter. Yes, we'll get back to that later, I think. And he's definitely a magic user. Mm. I mean, he gets into Tara by some unknown means. Mm. The fort is, fort is locked against him. Yeah. He just appears inside. Yes, no problem to him. You know, that still reminds me of Mananan. The way Mananan just appeared to Cormac. Mm. Though the fort was locked, he could just appear inside and do whatever he liked. Yes, yeah. But what we're getting at, really, is his magical status is most definitely acknowledged. Yeah. Well, when this unknown warrior appears just like that within the locked gates of Tara, um, he is welcomed. It's sort of, you get that feeling, it's almost a surprised courtesy. You know, someone yeah. shows up at the door and you kind of <laughs> have know. to invite them in. <laughs> but, uh, but when he's welcomed, what Mither says is, it is for that we have come. So you mean he expects to be welcomed? I think so, yes. But this is, it, it's part of a pattern that will get picked up again later. When Yuckert invites him in, Yuckert says that he doesn't know Mither, but Mither does say he knows who Yuckert is. So when Yuckert asks his name, Mither says his name is not famous, which I find really curious. So he's not known to Yuckert's people, at the very least. I find this fascinating, yeah. that the storyteller seems to be suggesting or agreeing that Mither's stories are not as well known as they should be. Exactly. It's yeah. almost like saying, you may not, to his audience, yeah. now you may not recognise how important Mither is yeah. because we haven't many stories about him. Yeah. And that's true. Exactly. You know, he should be, he's supposed to be a really important character. Yeah, yeah. And yet there's hardly any stories about yeah, Mither. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, neither Mither or Mananan of course. <laughs> appear in Moitura. Yeah. And there's more stories of Mananan than Moitura, other than, than Mither. Mither. Yeah, yeah. But this, I think, is going to be its own topic for some yeah. later point. It's something I'm getting really interested mm -hmm. in because I think there's a mystery here. Yeah. But you're right. Yeah. It, it, it's... <laughs> That's for another day. Another... This is complicated enough for together, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Well, after all of this kind of politeness and uh, mystery and exchange of names, Mither says that the reason that he's come is that he wants to play a game of fiddle <laughs> with Jochet, uh, which might seem a bit trivial to us. Um, Jochet says, yeah, absolutely, he'd love to play a game. He's really good at it, what's more. But alas, he can't do it because it's early in the morning. Oh, just an excuse. <laughs> I think so, maybe. But he says his board, anyway, is in the Queen's house, in Aideen's compartment, yeah. and that she's still asleep. So they can't go and get I'd love it. to play with you, but, but yeah, not now. Yeah. Maybe another time. Yeah. Nice to see you. Bye. Of course, Mither comes back with, no problem. I happen to have my own board with me. <laughs> very conveniently. And it's a pretty good board, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's quite nice. He yeah. says he's got a board that's not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> but this not too bad board is, mm. a, is a silver board with golden men and each corner lit up by precious stones with a, a with a bag of plaited links of bronze. Yeah, yeah. That, that's just not bad for a not... Exactly, that's just his travel set. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But uh, one of the things I wanted to just pick up on from the description is the term that's used for a bag of fichelmen, and it's not just in this tale, it comes up elsewhere, and that is fair bulk. Oh, that's a word we've met before. We, we, yeah, we recognise that term. Now, in, in this setting, it seems to very literally mean a bag for the men, as in, you know, the chess mm -hmm. men, if you like, or the fichel pieces. Um, but I don't know, maybe it has a sense of referring back to the ideas of, you know, a mythical battle between mm -hmm. the two at Adana and the Fairbog. And, and the Fairbog so are really just the pawns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something like that. <clears throat> Mind you, the, this game of fiddle, fiddle is going to be central to the story, ah, yeah. isn't it? And I suppose we've just talked about it as a game. Mm. Maybe we should talk about the game itself. It's worth pointing out, we do not have a complete board, a complete set of pieces, or, you know, a nice handy list of rules inside the box. Um, <laughs> well, let's see what we do Exactly, now. yeah. Well, Fihl is referred to in a lot of stories. I mean, it's yeah. there in my tour, isn't it? It's yes. Recru, we mentioned their play. Yeah, it does pop up all the time. Um, it's clearly a very central to Irish culture, and so much so that it was part of the required education for the son of a noble uh, when he went into fosterage. Yeah. You know, there were things that, in order to fulfil your fosterage contract, you had to teach. And uh, so uh, uh, the son of a noble would be taught Fichel, as well as another game called Branayacht. Yeah. Um, as well as things like horse riding and marksmanship. So, you know, things that he would need in his adult life. But Fichel was part of that. There'd be plenty of people who go, uh, plenty of young men who go, oh, can we see uh, various video and women? Yes. Various video games. Can we make them part of the <laughs> Part of the curriculum. Very oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. There are things you can learn. Yeah? Oh, yeah. No uh, I mean, to get back to the game, what you can say is it's clearly uh, an ancient, definitely pre-Norman board game yes. uh, of skill and strategy. Exactly, exactly. And uh, for that reason, it often gets translated in the stories as chess. Um, it's not chess. Um, a lot was made in the sort of the 18th and 19th century antiquarian studies because... Oh, you see, the Irish invented chess. <laughs> no, they didn't. No, they didn't. Most cultures, in fact, do have very ancient uh, strategy-based games like this. You've got Aware mm. in Africa, you've got Go in Japan. You know, it seems to be quite a common human thing. Yeah, and it's, it's possible that in later medieval times that chess kept the name of uh, earlier games, mm. when the forms of those games were forgotten. Yes, we do have some archaeological evidence of fiddle boards. Yeah. Um, and they seem to be on, you know, it is a square board, it has either 9 by 9 or, or 11 by 11 squares. Yeah. Um, another thing that has been determined, I think, is that one side has more pieces than the other side. Mm, there is, it's a bit like Fox and Geese, mm. if you know that one. Or there is a, a Viking game, which is also a suggested game, a yes. possible game, with the, with quite some well-known Viking pieces. Mm. But again, there's a, a, basically you have a small number of defenders. Yes. And a lot of attackers. Lesser, yeah. lesser attack, attackers. Yes. And um, the defenders have to sort of keep a central king or, you know, large piece and... And what it's I... worth pointing out there were Welsh and Breton games, Breton games rather, which yes. may be very similar. Of course, yeah. Now, this is just a, a very brief uh, look at a very complex and fascinating issue. There's a fantastic uh, article oh, yeah. that we yeah. read about chess and fiddle um, by Timothy Harding, and we'll 
get a link to that up on the okay. blog because I think it's well worth reading and it's it's quite enjoyable as well as a read. Certainly, it's clear in this story that neither Yochid nor Mither uh, consider the request to play a game as something just light-hearted and inconsequential. It is a serious challenge. Oh no, and the audience will be in no doubt that there'll be a stake involved, a exactly. pretty good stake. Yeah, there have to be consequences for this there game. There do, and that's the kind of stake, a bit like betting, where uh, you say what the other person, what you'll give the other person if they win, essentially. Yeah, just... Mind you, I find it interesting that he says, I've come just to play a game. Yeah. But if you remember, Corey <laughs> said the same thing in, in Fred, Fred Brickrun. Yeah. You know, he says, oh, I've just come to play a game. Why don't we play a game together? Look, uh, uh, you, I'll cut your head off and then you can right. cut mine. So the exactly. behead, beheading game, game is just introduced as a game. Exactly, yeah. So games are kind of important. Yeah. I suppose in a way you, you've got this fighting and winning, you know, it's, mm. it, honour can be gained as much by outwitting someone. Oh yeah. As hacking their head off. Yeah, which is, again, it's quite common in the sort of the fairy tale type of story where you said have... that, I've just mentioned an example where he does often yeah, hack he his does. head off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that really is a bit of a contradiction, isn't well, it? Well, no, it's both. It's both. It's both just the sort of, uh, yeah, a light-hearted game or a game of strategy and thinking. Um, but yeah, sometimes heads do roll. <laughs> Not just dice, heads. Yeah. <laughs> but I suppose in a way that games can be used as formalizations of a fight in the mm. same way as their strategy yeah. for a fight. Mm. They can always also be used sometimes instead of a fight. Yeah, yeah. And especially for, for nobles who part of their job is this kind of military protection and, um, you know, military power struggle. Yeah, you can do it as much through a game of fiddle as you could through, you know, a duel. Uh, it's a bit like the sort of the duel fighting of, of right. So it's serious as a duel, a set, a set, you know, to, um, settling an honor debt, mm. settling uh, what could blow up into a major war. Exactly. Yeah. Settling it by a duel between nobles. Yes. Which can be played out by hacking each other's heads off. Yes. But it can also be played out as a game which can be seen in front of everybody. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the, there is a sort of, I, I think, an almost social evolutionary sense to formalizing this kind of, uh, you know, struggle for power, because obviously if you keep on killing people, then, you know, the, there's sort of very negative consequences. In a way, it's similar to the role, I think, that sport <laughs> at least used to have, not necessarily still, but I think some of oh, the yeah, origins of sport. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's that quote about football is not just a matter of life and death, it's much more important than that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can't say I personally agree with the sentiment. I don't know. It used to be a load of people in the street kicking a ball from one end of the town to the other. Exactly. And some say that was a severed head in the first place. Yes, and even after it had been a severed head, it was then an inflated pig's bladder. I'm know. not interested. <laughs> no. What do I know? Nothing. But if you look at it kind of sociologically, anthropologically, you can see the benefit of getting all of these very sort of angry young men. So you're putting football and chess into the same category. No, I am definitely not. <laughs> Sorry. I am not. This is just a, an, an outsider's speculation oh, no, saying I, I can see... let this one go. <laughs> I can see a function, put it that way. One thing that I do notice in, in the stories yeah. is that you've got these wonderful description of, shall we say, honour battles, mm. duels, meetings and um, challenges. Mm. But when you get a real 
full-scale battle described, yeah. say as in Moitura, yeah. there's a very different tone. It is. There's yeah. a tone of sadness mm. and tragedy. And uh, you're almost horror. Horror. Yeah. You know, great was the slaughter and the grave lying. Yeah. You know, it is taken seriously. Exactly. And Death that... is taken very seriously. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that, that very visceral description of how the men were slipping in each other's blood, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. in Moitura and so on. Yeah, that's the thing. Full-scale, all-out war. There is, is no love of that. Horrific. It is. It is failure. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas yeah. these honor battles, whether mm. a duel with swords mm. or um, a showing off of, mm. uh, of uh, a war of words, war like of the words, Ulster women, yeah. Yeah. or a showing off of, of how brilliant you are and how marvelous you mm. look, mm. is completely separate. Exactly. To real. Yeah, horrible fighting. Exactly, yeah. So Mither and Yochad sit down to play their game of fickle, but of course there has to be a mm -hmm. stake. Um, and so Mither makes an offer of these 50 dark grey horses, but they're clearly special horses. Yeah, yeah. And they have their own alliterative list. You shall have for me, said Mither, 50 dark grey horses. Quega gavar novglas. Idei kenvreka Crowderga, Birda Brindlethen, Bulgroin, Cushoila, Cumbrasa, Foiverda, Fevenda, Urarda Agnada, Hostada, Hogavolta, Conacoigav, Nal, Cruin, Mosna. With dappled blood red heads, pointed ears, broad chested with baggy nostrils, slender limbs, mighty, sharp, huge and swift. Yep. It's nice, isn't it? It is. It's kind one. of special horses. Yes. Well, Mither loses his first game, which he clearly intends, and uh, then he leaves. And the horses just arrive the next morning out of the blue. They just appear from nowhere yeah. by magic within the palace. Of course. And uh, this is honourable, says Yockett. What is owed is due, said Mither. And that's an important phrase. That will come back again um, and is of central importance. It's a real storyteller's run. It's a exactly. repeat. It, yeah. it keeps turning up and it, it draws the audience attention to yeah. this is central. Exactly. So it's not long before he turns up for a second game. Of course. And I'm sure Jokid is much more happy to go ahead this time. Oh, he, yeah. He thinks he's going to win some really good stuff. Naturally. And um, this time, I mean, Mither really offers a massive stake, doesn't he? It is quite a lot, yeah. First, he says there will be 50 young boars plus a massive blackthorn vat into which they will all fit. <laughs> he also offers 50 red-eared white cows along with their calves. Yeah, but don't forget the 50 red-headed sheep. Yes. Each of which has three heads yeah. and three horns on each head. Yes. I mean, it's just going a bit over the top Tis here. And then on top of that, there's 50 gold-hilted swords. And don't forget 50 ivory javelins to top it all off. And each set has to be delivered one set each day. Exactly, yeah. It's a lot to offer for one game. It is, rather. I tell you what, it doesn't half remind me of, what, what you know, the 12 Days of Christmas. Uh-huh. You know, I think it might have been... <laughs> Oh, go on, let's give it a go. Fifty golden swords, fifty red-haired sheep with three heads, fifty red-haired white cows, fifty young boars, and a blackthorn vat in which they all fit. Do you think you'll catch on? <laughs> let's hope not. Yeah, well, there's no way that, that Jochid can match this stake. No, no, it is rather extravagant. And indeed, Jochid's own foster father becomes quite suspicious of this. And uh, he gives Jochid some advice yeah. about making a counter-demand. 
So in other words, he's going, don't, I don't want that. I'll have something else instead. Yes, yeah. You know, he may have a point because this estate is so obviously otherworldly. Mm. I mean, the red-headed sheep, and we'll start, you don't usually get three-headed sheep. Uh, well, no, that's a bit, uh, that's a rarity, let's say. <laughs> At least I've never had red-headed sheep. Or, or a three-headed sheep. For that matter. <laughs> but three dots do there, there. We've got red-headed sheep or three-headed sheep. It gets confusing. But the point is that any animal that has red ears or red tail mm. In folklore, is nearly always from the other world. Exactly. I mean, there's there's tales in England of the wild hunt, mm. and the animals always red-eared yeah, or, yeah. um, uh, or sometimes red-tailed. Mm. Uh, it's made me wonder whether maybe animals were marked for festivals mm. with red ochre at some period. This is entire speculation. Of course, yeah, I it's quite know. possible because you know while you can get uh, sort of cattle or dogs, we knew a dog with who was white with red ears. Um, you can get them, but they'd be exceedingly rare. So, yeah, I, I can easily well, sheep, see it. red-headed sheep would be even rarer. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They'd be the, the Although I think the three-headed sheep is a bit of a giveaway. Yeah. <laughs> there is another point, though, yeah. that maybe... Um, Jokic's foster father thinks that they may be sort of fairy gold, mm. the equivalent of fairy gold. In the folk tales, so often you find that things that are given from mm. the fairy world or from the other other world mm. turn out to be either they either disappear yeah. in the morning or they turn out to be a worthless illusion. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe he's got some of that about him. Yeah. Uh, the, there's another thing I think in play here as well, which is that so far, um, Mither has directed all of the activities he's kind of held the power in this exchange you know he mm -hmm. shows up he suggests the fiddle he has the fiddle board well he can come and go as he chooses exactly he suggests the stay off pudding yeah so in a way when Jochit's foster father suggests that in fact no he should ask for a different steak it kind of gives Jochit some of the power back it gives him some of the ability to direct the proceedings and to get stuff that he wants yeah, well, he makes his demands and he's obviously certain of winning. Do you notice there's absolutely no indication of what he would offer if Mither won? No, no, there doesn't seem to be any doubt. These tasks that Yuckard wants. Yes. What the... he asked for instead of all this stuff. Exactly. The first thing is uh, what I, I generally translate as the de-stoning of the Plain of Meath. Removal of stones from yeah. me. And then there's the removal or maybe the harvesting of rushes of the Tethba. Yeah, that's a little bit unclear what that might be. There's the creation of a causeway over Moen Lavraga. And a wood over Brefni. Yeah. And we're in Brefni here. We are indeed. And these are really very interesting tasks for all kinds of reasons. You know, they do mirror the tasks that were undertaken by the Dagdor on mm. behalf of Angus when yeah. he uh, when he was wooing Aideen for the first time. Exactly, yeah. And, and basically ended up as part of her bride price. Yeah, only this time he has to carry out the work himself. Yes, um, it's very much, it seems, that these are the sort of tasks that you would expect to find in something like the Leverick of Orla. Yeah, it's a bit like those, you know, like the the original formation of the land. Exactly. The clearing of plains, mm. the uh, development of water, yeah. bodies of water. Yeah, uh, it's very, um, yeah, properly the Dagda's work, I would say, mm -hmm. you know, and something that's a little bit more if you like, primordial than the setting of this part of the story. Yeah. And yet here we have foundation tasks, mm. the really basic stuff for yeah. which the creation of the land is made. Exactly. I mean, it's it's almost as though, well, that's what used to be done. Yeah. That's how the land was made. Mm. And to show it's important, mm. we'll use tasks of this time. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But we should have a look at these tasks, I think, in more detail. Well, I mean, this is Ireland. Most <laughs> fields need stone removal. Yes. <laughs> 
And even more need ridding of rushes. I yeah. mean, that's ubiquitous, if that's yeah. what it means. Yeah, it's a little bit unclear that the phrase would literally translate as rushes over Tethba. Um, I took that as getting rid of yeah, rushes. Yeah, but it doesn't say rushes out of Tethba or yeah, rushes off Tethba. Uh, that's why I thought maybe it's referring to the harvesting of rushes, which is, you know, an they important resource. They were a very resource. important resource. Absolutely. The problem I have with that mm. is that uh, ev all these other tasks, mm. both in this set of tasks and the first set of tasks, yeah. um, in the first paying of the Bright mm. Prize, they're all about land improvement. Mm. Mm. And uh, rush harvesting is not a one-off job it's yeah. not one-off land it's just every year maintenance mm. and just developing the land yeah um i'm not sure really what it means yeah it's, uh, it's tricky yeah rush removal makes sense yeah now i don't know yeah and then of course there's the wood in breathly yes. whatever now that interests me because oh, yeah. we live in breathly we do indeed. it's the old name for this part of the country yeah and uh, unfortunately, a lot of this area got covered with Sitka spruce back in yeah. the last uh, few decades. Yeah. It's better now, but uh, it was thought to be very poor land. Mm. It is not, is no, it? No. It's extremely fertile. Mm. I've got nine acres of broadleaf trees yeah. and the oaks and the a lot of the trees grow really... 50% oak. It does really, really yeah, well. Yeah, it does. I think that this area has been seen as bad land because it's very bad land for raising, like, a herd of cattle or sheep. Well, what is really... It's um, the substructure of the land is, mm. is impermeable clay. Yeah. And therefore, it puddles very easily. Exactly. So it worked extraordinarily well when you were using um, hand machinery yeah. or, or cattle, mm. or, you know, sort of... A small mixed plow, yeah. Horse-drawn plows yeah. and donkey carts. Mm. But it's dreadful for big machinery. Yeah, yeah. Tractors just destroy it, yeah. But, I mean, there are plenty of trees around. There are. And I think there are still little pockets here and there. Like, if you're driving around on the, the back roads in this area, every now and then you hit this pocket that just feels like old forest. They're mature, broadleaf trees, it you know? It's certainly forested up till the time of Donovan. You yeah. Know, Donovan, you remember he was going on about, oh, I'm not going into Breffney. Yeah. Oh, it's much too dangerous. There's dark trees and people who jump out at you. Bandit country. Yeah, exactly. And that was only, what, about a couple of centuries yeah. back. Yeah, so I think that I like that bit, that in fact it was... Missing. Woods over Breffney. It's yeah. meant to be wooded. Exactly. Yeah. And then we need to talk about the other task, which oh, is yeah. a really important one. This is the biggie, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, the causeway over Moen Lovriga. Now, it's not just that there is really exciting archaeology for this bit, but also this story focuses on this task particularly. Now, Moen Lovriga is a bogland which is around Corley County, Longford. And what's important about that is the discovery of an Iron Age causeway built over the bog. Yeah, there were excavations between about 1984 to 1981 by mm. Professor Rafferty and they've discovered or uncovered at least a kilometre yeah. of this roadway. It's beautifully made mm. with oak planks from about 3 to 5, 3.5 metres long mm. and around 15 centimetres thick mm. and, you know, on rails about about a, a metre or so apart. Yeah, so you can imagine the sort of the, the guide rails, if you like, and then these sleepers laid on, on yeah. top of them. Uh, didn't he say it took maybe 300 fully grown oak trees? Or oh, at least, yeah. yeah and what's more is that it can be dated exactly. Yeah, a wonderful and thing. With dendrochronological mm -hmm. dating dates it to exactly uh, 148 or early 147 BC. Isn't that Isn't amazing? It brilliant? It's just so And great. I know having talked to people at Corley in the wonderful interpretive centre, mm. which is sadly ignored, yeah. as being one of the best sites oh, in the country. Oh, it's wonderful. And 
it's just a long way from anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, I will put loads of information on it about yes. it. It's one of my favourite sites. Yes. But talking to people there, we know there's a lot more of this road. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there has to be no yeah, covered. Yeah, yeah. And it seems as though there are several roads that mm. all converged on a, a, a well, when you say a hill, there are no hills, there's just mm. a pancake. Yeah. There, but a piece of high dry land. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, nobody knows exactly why this road yeah. was constructed. But what is so mysterious is that it was made very carefully with mm. a huge amount of work and attention yeah. to detail. And materials. Knowing that it would last less than 10 years yeah. and yeah. would sink after that time. Yeah. It was built to fail mm. and it was built for a special purpose. Yeah. And it's mysterious. Exactly. But we know it's exactly dated. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that business of only being in existence for such a short period of time, they clearly had the engineering for making a roadway that lasted. So the only conclusion is that they chose not to, that they chose to make something that would sink into the bog within a decade. And that's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a bit like, um, I know we've talked about uh, Owen Maka before, yeah. and the site up at Navan Fort, mm. which exactly was built almost precisely the same time. Mm. And it took them a hundred years to build this wonderful, huge roundhouse mm. divided into sections, which they promptly then burnt down and buried. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's something very mysterious at this period in yeah, time. Yeah, definitely. You know, Iron Age weirdness. <laughs> and yeah. do you know, we know more about the Bronze Age, yeah. probably more about the Neolithic mm. than about this particular area period in which Ireland. Period, which yeah. is why I think these stories are so important. Absolutely, yeah. But again, we, uh, Chris already put up a very good article about Ewan Macha and it's... Um, oh, we'll relink to it. Yes, anyway. we'll relink to it. It has been uh, linked to by a page which is all about the archaeology of Navan Fort, so we're a bit proud of that. Um, but yeah, this the site of Corley is in some ways, I think, even more exciting. So do I. Yeah. And, and it, if I repeat it, sadly ignored. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, it's this task that uh, this tale gives so much focus oh, to. It does, yeah. yeah, and and it's it's given in plenty of detail, but its importance is also reinforced by the prose. It quotes a couple of quatrains mm. of a poem which relates to this task, the building of the causeway, and that's a way of the, if you like, the prose author kind of giving it validity, you know, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. by saying, look, it's so important. There's this poem that we all know it's about. It's almost quote, quoting uh, sources. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it is. Yeah, it's it's sort of a footnote almost. But not only that, I mean, it, that's partly, I think, how we can look at this tale as having been built out of the framework of poetry. Mm -hmm. But even more so, there are two passages of Ruskada, of this non-syllabic, you know, very impenetrable <laughs> poetry which I love so much and there's two passages which are related um, within this part of the text and um, they are all about the physical construction of this causeway and I think that you know they could even be the original core of the whole story it's but, that important yeah it yeah. really is given a central importance, yeah, isn't it? Most the definitely. building of this road. Mm. We sound like we're emphasising it. Well, we are. Because it's important! <laughs> Mither says that this is tough. Yeah. He thinks he's got a really tough job. Mm -hmm. And says that the tasks are just too great for yeah. him. Yeah. But uh, he does say he'll have a go, and he makes a counter-demand. Mm. He'll do it as long as everybody stays indoors and nobody watches. Yeah. He'll yeah. get it done overnight, mm. but... But no one's allowed. No one's to allowed to see. Yeah, it's clearly a more difficult task for him than it was would be for the Dagda, 
in yeah. this situation. He he needs kind of more help, I think. He's <laughs> fine, it. yes. I mean, he doesn't do it by himself. No, no. He uses all his people, mm. as we'll see. Mm. Uh, mind you, of course, Yokid breaks the rules. Naturally, yes. He has to send a little spy. So. He sends his steward <laughs> yeah. to secretly watch the work. And, mm. of course, that's what I... That was the story at the opening of exactly. this piece. Exactly, yeah. But, you know, that's what makes it so exciting, is because it reads almost like a first-hand account of someone who had watched the trackway at Corley being constructed. It has that feeling, doesn't yeah. it? Now, I, I, I gave that gave some of these descriptions mm. in this story, but I'll just go over some of them again, yeah, as, as the they appear in the text. They appear in the text. Yeah. It seemed to him as though all the men in the world had come to that bog from sunrise to sunset. They all made one mound of their clothes, and Mither went up on the mound. Into the bottom of the causeway they put a forest, including its trunks and roots. Mither standing and urging on the host on every side. You would think that below him all the men of the world were raising a tumult. After that, clay and gravel and stones are put upon the bog. Mm. And there is a road-building description. I know, yeah. Including 300 oaks yeah. and all the rest of the, the wood, the birch yeah. and all the rest of it. Yeah. A forest yeah. is put into the bog. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's not, I don't think it's an exact description of the construction, but it just feels so live and so personal, so real. As this steward is spying on the great work of Mither's people, he notices that when they're using their oxen, presumably for dragging these, you know, a lot of wood to drag this forest, three hundred oaks and all yeah, the rest of it, to drag all this along, that they are putting, the, taking the strain through a yoke over their neck or their shoulders, and the text says that before that in Ireland they had used yokes that put the strain on the forehead. That's a strange oxen. thing to say. There's yeah. no, there's no evidence that, that there's any truth in this mm. i mean there are two types of well there are three types of yoke but there's two types of yoke that are particularly relevant here mm. there's a normal one that go around the neck of the oxen mm. and those were mostly used all over europe yeah and uh, then you've got the other ones mm. that uh well you've got the sort of um band on the forehead of the of the oxen mm. and the yoke fits around the horns of yeah. the oxen. it can only be used on horned animals yeah and uh those were used in hilly areas mm. and uh, like switzerland or spain or somewhere mm. or parts of italy or mountains mm. and here we're on very very flat land yeah, yeah now the only reference i can find to the earliest yoke i can find in mm. ireland is there was a late bronze age yeah. uh, wooden one found mm. in a bog up in ballymoney in northern ireland mm. but that was a, a double yoke yeah it was a neck neck yoke. shoulder one yeah yeah so it's difficult to tell, and yet this is so specific, isn't it? It is, and it goes on to say that, you know, after they had witnessed the other world people using that, then they introduced uh, the neck yoke to the people of Ireland, and that is why Yuchud is known as Yuchud Arav, the ploughman, is because he introduced this new, new form. Wonderful improvement. Exactly, yeah. It It is odd, it, you know, it makes me wonder whether maybe if you can find one plough in a bog, mm. oh, not plough, sorry, they're different if you find one yoke in a bog yeah. up north, mm. maybe this is bogland, maybe they found something here, this is utter speculation, yeah, yeah. but there's something specific going there is. on here. There is, and I mean, even if there wasn't one found in Ireland, um, 
it's very possible that people at this time in Ireland would have seen the other kind of yoke in parts of southern Europe or heard descriptions at least and so they knew that there were different ways of doing it but mm. obviously the way they did it was better so theirs was a gift of the ancestors exactly. uh, much better than anybody else yeah I don't know it's just so specific mm. one goes looking for yeah but it's just sources but just as specific as Bresch and his three March his three Tuesdays yeah. you know which is another example of one of these origin stories of you know how good agricultural practices came from these ancestor figures it's an interesting topic but mm. i don't think there's any answers to yeah it. yeah one thing i do know is that mither is not happy to be spied upon no he's not and this is more important than you might think because the text says that because they were being watched in this labor they left defects in the causeway and that's something that I don't think was picked up before, but if you think of this, you can talks on this. Tale, yeah, I have. <laughs> that you think of this story where it says that there was a deliberate fault left in the mm -hmm. building of the causeway, and then you have the archaeological causeway which was built to fail, and I don't know that anyone has made that connection. No, previously. the text says. He left defects in yeah. it because he was spied upon. Exactly. But the defects were built into this causeway. Mm. And sure enough, the defect yeah. is there. Exactly. It yeah. was built knowing that it would fail. I, I just find that phenomenal. I know, yeah, yeah. It, and it, very rare in our studies, I have to say. You know, that there you've got this trackway mm. that was made with huge effort, mm. and, deliberately yeah. built to last for less than 10 years. Yeah. It was built for a one-off event. Mm. Mm. That That seems clear. Yeah. And the technology of the time could easily have made them to last. Oh, yeah, that's that's very clear. You know, you, you don't have that much knowledge about how to build a roadway over a bog without knowing how to make it stay afloat. <laughs> Again, just as I said, a bit like Awamaka. Our, our exactly. You yeah. know, this strange you know, Iron Age weirdness. Yeah. Well, after all that and the building of the road, the mm. steward then reports back to Yokid mm. and tells him what he's seen and this fantastic effort. Yeah. You know, he's obviously really impressed yes. with what he's seen to the point of almost horrified by what he's seen yeah. and the work that's gone on. And he says that uh, there was not on the ridge of the world a power that surpassed Mithers. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's also kind of, you know, you've got to write one here. Yeah, <laughs> that's quite true, yeah. You're not going to beat this one, be it, careful. Yeah, yeah. And so duly, Mither then shows up for another game mm. um, in Yochid's uh, in Court. The third game. This is game number three coming up. But this time, Mither is sort of stomping around quite angrily he's changed his attitude he has he? somewhat yeah he's now saying that you know these tasks were too heavy and it was unfair essentially and so Jochid then as a host has to try and placate him right so the power balance has changed it has and Mither in spite of the fact that Jochid was trying to take the power away from him yeah he's grabbed it back exactly and he's now got you know he's now taken the you know righteous anger yeah Look what you put me through yeah and this game of etiquette mm. is is bouncing the power back and forth exactly yes and so that means that Jochid has to obviously do things the way that Mither wants for now and uh, so when he accepts to play yet another game of fiddle mm -hmm. they decide or they agree that the stake should be whatever the winner decides it's well, going to be <laughs> I know isn't that very yeah nicely open and what a surprise Mither wins the third game right. and uh, so then Jochid uh, has to give him whatever it is he asks for. Yeah, of course, at that point, Mither starts to show his hand, doesn't he? You know, he's yeah. twisting the knife and going, I could have won 
any time I wanted. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's really uh, saying, you've played right into my hands, and um, mine is an evil laugh. And what does so, he ask for? Well, you know, he wants a kiss from Aideen. Yeah. His two arms around her. Yeah. What a surprise. I know. How disingenuous. Yes. <laughs> and of course, it sounds harmless enough, but Jochid is definitely on his guard. He's not going to take things at face value anymore, and he asks for a month's grace oh, before no. the awarding <laughs> of this seemingly simple prize. I'm sorry to mention Malalan again, but that doesn't have to remind me of, of when uh, Malalan goes to Cormac mm. and uh, comes to take his wife away. Yes. You know, and he yeah. says he can't stop me. You know, mm. you've offered me whatever boon I ask. Yeah. So it's your wife I'm going to take to the land of promise. Exactly. Yeah. Although I suppose it is different because Miz is doing this to set his own household. He right? is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. From, from his point right, of view, from his point of view, it's a right to age. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But that month's grace, of course, is what gives Jochid the opportunity to, you know, basically lock up the fort extra tight, get all of his men and his guards arrayed around him and Aideen sort of at the centre of this, you know, multi-layered wall of spears and fences and all the rest of it. There's a real sort of strategy game going on here, let alone fiddle. I know, This yeah. is a whole thing is a strategy game. Exactly, yeah. And you, you could almost see it played out on a board, and mm -hmm. particularly this part where you've got the king and the queen safe in the centre. Seemingly right, safe yeah. in the centre, with all these surrounded layers by, of defence. Yeah, surrounded by their guards, surrounded by the walls, surrounded by locks, yeah. surrounded by more. You know, they're right in the middle. Exactly. And it does say uh, at this point that, you know, the, the day that Mither is due to come and claim his prize, it does say that it was Aideen who was serving the drink that night. Oh, now this is something you've written about before, isn't it? They, what, yes. what serving drink? Yeah, um, well, what, what the implications of what it means. Exactly. Now, um, I put up the first part of an article uh, with the first episode of, mm -hmm. of Aideen about Aideen and Eslu and Vessels and Rebirth. I'm going to put up the second half of that article with this episode because that's where it looks at the connection between especially Aideen and this image of the serving of drink, the dispensing of drink which I think is a codification of sexual favours, essentially, mm. or a sort of sexual hospitality, um, that it's both been encoded for stories, but maybe it was encoded in a practical term, in practical mm -hmm. way as mm. well. But that I think that, that what might have become mm. ex acceptable behaviour exactly. later on is not regarded as acceptable yeah. behaviour, especially... Yeah you know, after Norman times. Exactly, yeah. And uh, therefore it must be formalised Exactly, yeah. And that, that that's, I think that's part of what this serving of drink uh, represents. Well, the article will be there. It's a very interesting exactly, article. Yeah. yeah. But let's go on with the story. Yeah. I mean, Mither comes in looking, how does the text put it, slightly fairer than normal. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm sorry if we're laughing, but it reminds us of a story from long ago. Yes, yes, we're, we were trying to help someone who had never done a live storytelling show before, and so we were sort of watching... Trying to coach them. him through the night. Yeah, Exactly, yes, yes. He comes out with this wonderful line, it was a dark night, slightly darker than any other night. I'm afraid to say we lost it at that point. So every time he comes in, looking slightly fairer, yes, 
<laughs> I'm sorry. That's yeah. a personal uh, yeah. personal connection. But anyway, yes. King welcomes him. Of course. And once again, Mither has just popped up in the middle of the court. He hasn't gone through all of these layers of fences and guards and defences and so on. He's just going, bing, here so, I am. You know, I, as a matter of fact, I say Jakob welcomes him, but yeah. the choices he has. I know. He must be, uh, Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. You mean none of it worked? <laughs> Now, the phrases Mither uses at this point, well, they're familiar, aren't they? They are indeed. This is the little star that I, that we put up earlier, that when Mither comes in, he is welcomed, because that's proper. And once again, he said, it is for that that we have come. And then he reminds both Jokhad and the audience, what is owed is due, or what is promised is due. Mm -hmm. What I promise to you, I have given. I love Jokhad's reply. Oh, I hadn't thought of that till now. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, I think that's a bit of the sort of disingenuousness. It's like, oh, the soldiers? Oh, they just happened to be here. No, 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 no nothing to do no, with no, you. No, no. In fact, they just thought, oh, it was locked. I'm yeah, so sorry. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a little bit. Oh, of I a... thought I'd give you the key. Oh, I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All of that stuff. And then he talks to Aidy, doesn't he? Yeah, he says to her, you know, reminds her and reminds us that she had already agreed that she would go with him. And, uh, oh, she blushes. She does, rather, at that. But what's kind of nice here, I think, is that Mither tells her not to be ashamed. He said that, you know, her promise was not improper. Yeah, well, maybe she's remembering those two nights she spent with him on the hill yeah. when she thought he was uh, idle. Yes, exactly, yeah. So maybe there is a little bit of, you know, doublespeak going on. Uh, yeah, you know, hey, remember those two nights we yeah. spent? Yeah, it, don't worry, it's all right. Yes, exactly, because we were already married in a previous incarnation, yeah. etc. And this time she wrote, she says again that she won't go with him, and she uses the phrase, unless my husband sells me to you. Yeah. That sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? It but... does. It does sound sort of poor to our ears, but... As before, when we were discussing bride prices and so on, um, I mean, one of the things about a bride price is that the bride herself retains a right mm -hmm. to whatever has been paid for her. Um, I think it's maybe you could argue that it's slightly better than the than the dowry where a father pays a man to take his daughter off his hands. <laughs> but I think what's really important here is that by using this term of selling mm. and referring to the bride price and so on, what it's talking about is a proper contract. Mm -hmm. So um, when there's an exchange, it is a proper formal arrangement. She won't go with him unless mm. there's her, her rights are protected. Exactly. And I unless it's properly recognised and formalised. Yeah. Well, she's, so she's protecting herself. She is, very much so, yeah. yeah. So Absolutely. the word is kind of... Yeah, it grates a bit to our yeah. ears, naturally. But I think that that is part of... What is meant by it is this sort of formalisation. So Jokic's forced to give in, isn't he? He's got to give the stake the Exactly, promised. yeah, yeah. But again, I think while he's still anxious about it, he thinks, well, what can he do in the midst of a fort with all these soldiers around us? And what can he do? all he's going to do is put his arms around him. Yeah, this, this moment that gets often shown in images. Yes. Once Mither's got an arm round Aideen, mm -hmm. whoop! They both disappear through the skylight. Yes. So obviously you've got a roundhouse with a velox window. <laughs> <laughs> Something of that. No, nature. I don't know. <laughs> you've got this, as we said in Brick Room, we've yeah, got this yeah. strange mixture of the medieval mm. and the uh, late Iron Age hat type house. There's yes. this real, sometimes it's one, sometimes the other. Yeah, and you're never yeah. quite sure where it is. Exactly. Here it's translated as skylight yeah, and a roof. It's some kind of opening in the roof, I think we can say. And when the the court goes outside to try and see where they've gone, 
All they see are two swans flying off in the direction of Schlievenamon, or Sheban Fynd, as it's been referred to earlier in this tale. Mm. Which is a, a, a wonderful sort of folktale image. And that, in essence, is the end of the story. Yeah. Only there's a terrific amount of aftermath. Oh, there's a lot <laughs> to be clear There's out. a lot of debris in yeah. this story. Oh, firstly, the men of Ireland react violently, just mm. as if they've been waiting for a cause to just explode. Yeah, yeah. And they advise Yochid, it feels like demand mm, mm. from Yochid, yeah. that he dig up every single she in Ireland. Yeah. Now, that means there's all-out war mm. against the she. Uh, and you could pick up this, of course, when we were dealing with the adventure of Nero. There's this undercurrent that there's already war with the she. Yes, exactly. But yeah, it is definitely sort of two worlds colliding. Don't you think it's a bit of a disproportionate... <laughs> Response. It is rather, yes. This one individual has slightly annoyed me, therefore I am going to level every home of his entire people. Yeah, this is something waiting to happen, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it is a bit of a powder keg, you know, but also, yeah, the, the dance of etiquette has finished or and now it's gloves off. An origin story about why there is war between the two worlds, yes. which we all know is there yeah. according to the storyteller. Mm, mm. I, I don't know, we'll yeah. talk about this a bit more later. Yeah. yeah. But let's get on with what happens. Yes. I mean, the residents of Schlievermann go, mm. well, yeah, Mither's king of the she, mm. uh, but he's not here at the moment. He's gone home to Brila. Yes. Which, of course, was up in Longford. Yeah. And so the men of Ireland rush off to Longford and start <laughs> digging up the she. Yeah. And it's, uh, they spend a year and a quarter, well, so, you know, a year yeah. and three months at least, um, trying to dig it up. Every night, every bit they dig, every night it's restored. Yes, yes, naturally. And uh, then it all gets a bit odd. Uh, yeah, the, there's some weird... <laughs> two white ravens come out of the, the mm. hill and then two dogs. Yeah. Yes, and those two dogs are named. They're named as Skleth and Sour. And uh, Skleth is, far as I can make out, it's a formation from Sklo, which is grief or sadness. So there's sadness. And then there's Savor, a name that we have met before uh, in Flevrikran. And while it's used to mean this summer food rent, it, what it literally means is summer ploughing. And I think that that's almost like a visual metaphor for this digging up of the, the she mounds. Yeah. That you do not plough in the summer. Yeah, if exactly. If you plough in the summer, you destroy mm. your food store. Yes. And therefore, that you know, that ploughing, that digging into the she mounds is just as destructive and wrong. So it's a metaphor for yeah, wrongness. Exactly. And I think white maybe ravens. the white ravens, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, things are not what they should be at this point. Um, but the weirdness doesn't end there. <laughs> Because Jokud and, and his, his troop... Men of Ireland. This time of all of Ireland. Exactly. Well, you know, it's... it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Ang know. Angry pitchforks and shovels, obviously. Back off they go, down to County Tipperary. And uh, once again, kind of lay Schlievenamon under siege. And the residents go, look, you know, we told you... He's been here. He's not here. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. But they say, we're not going to leave until I get my wife back. Which is slightly petulant, I think. Um... And the residents of Schlievenamon say, well, this is how you do it. Every day you must leave some blind puppies and cats outside Breeland. <laughs> now, is that going to help? I have it no idea. It is really, really strange. The only thing I can think of, it's almost like the opposite. Mm. Cats tend to, as we know in Ireland, guard mm. treasure. Yeah, yeah. And the blind puppies, mm. it's almost like reversing mm. the, the... The role the, of a watchdog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're almost putting back mm. what, what you've taken. Yes. So I think it's probably a metaphor for... Something like just that. Just go and put it right. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, maybe... 
uh, take a different, a more diplomatic approach. Exactly, yeah. I don't know. It's mm, a bit mm. obscure. The only thing it does remind me of a little bit is mm. the old story of Merlin mm. and uh, the building of the castle, you know, which kept collapsing every mm. night until uh, um, the king found the boy who had no mother. Mm. And then Merlin goes in and says that, no, there are two dragons fighting on there. But it's just a theme. Mm. I don't think there's more to it than that. Mm. Mm. It's a very strange story. <laughs> That's a particularly weird bit, I have to say. <laughs> In any case, this strategy of blind puppy and cat offering does seem to work because <laughs> okay. Mither then, he, he brokers a peace agreement between himself and Jochit and he says that he will bring Aideen to a place where Jochit can come and collect her. Um, of course, it's not really that straightforward because Mither does show up with Aideen but he also shows up with 49 other women that look exactly like Aideen. <laughs> And that's a little bit problematic. And he says to Jochut, okay, you can pick her up, pick your own wife, and let's be done with it. We'd and, like to go home, please. Yeah, and in fact, I think the women also say that, you know, just pick one of us and get it over with. You know, time to go home now. Um, Jochut asks his counsellors, you know, well, how should he pick? What should he do? They haven't got a clue. They also want to just get on with it and, and get home. But so Jochut decides that the way that he will pick out his wife is through this serving of drink. Yeah, well, in later folktales, he might have recognised her with a kiss. Yes. Or maybe it brought a euphemism, exactly. I don't know. Exactly, yeah. So then all of these women, they come up in pairs, they come up in twos and each pour drink with you know, inverted commas, for him. Um, and when he gets to the second last woman, he thinks she's the most like Aideen. He's not 100% convinced, though. But his counsellors say, look, you know... You've got one. She's as much like Aideen as you're going to get. Plus, you've also learned this new ploughing technique by your spying on the other world. Let's just pick this... Call it quits. ...and finish it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, although Jochit is not totally convinced... He is satisfied enough, you know, he has to go with this advice and just bring an end to it. And once again, this should be the end of the story. But it's not. This is this sounds a bit like the criticism of people made a return of the king, which weren't <laughs> my criticism, no, no. I have to say. But there is yeah, there is another twist. Yeah. And it's odd because it should all be all should be satisfied, mm. but somehow Mither is not satisfied. No, there's still He's something got wrong. To go and twist the knife. Mm. He's got to get full measure. He's yeah. pound of flesh if you like because mm. he goes back to Jokid mm. and tells him that he hasn't chosen Aideen mm. and the woman he's got is his own daughter yes that with all that wibbly wobbly timey wimey mm. stuff that happens when we're dealing with the world of the she <laughs> Aideen and Mither have had long enough for Aideen to have the daughter she was expecting yeah. that's Jokid's daughter mm. and for that daughter to have grown up and strangely be called Aideen and look exactly like her yes. mother yeah yeah and, uh, well, he's got Aide and Aideen back. Yes. But it's his own daughter, mm. which is a little bit embarrassing. It's more than a bit embarrassing. And I think that there's... You might wonder why Mither goes and, you know, finally... He, he sort of couches his visit. He says, you know, is everything even? Are we square? Are you satisfied with the arrangement we come, we've come to? Yeah. And Jochen said, yes, I am. And then Then Mither he tells says, him the truth. Yeah, then he says, that's your daughter. And, of course, Jokut has already slept with his daughter. Yeah. She's already expecting a child. Yeah, so Mither goes and tells him that he's committed incest. Yeah. And that's what you get for digging up the sheep. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And this really 
is the end of the story. <laughs> but there are codices. Yeah, there are many, many codices. Well, there's a complicated story of Yuckid's daughter, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, tell that one. Just well, this, briefly. This, again, um, we alluded to it before when we were talking about the connection between this tale and the Togol Rhythm Dolterica. Yeah, yeah. Because this Aideen, Aideen II, who's, you know, Yuckid's daughter, has this daughter who, again, is an Aideen and looks exactly the same. They send her off Yuckid wants her to be sent to the beast but then she ends up being reared with a puppy or with a bitch and some puppies and she ends up as the mother of Cunra Moore um who is the main protagonist of Togo Rhythm Valderiga. So it's good ancestor story. Exactly, yeah. That's part of what that's about. And then there's the other one, which is the killing of Yuckid mm. at Dunfreven. Exactly, yeah. Um by Mither's grandson. Yes, yeah. And this is part of what we referred to uh that bit where we were talking about an alternate end to Fuamnach, because there's this poem which is recited now at length within our text at the very end about how um, Mananon built or uh, burnt the hill of Breleth with its sacred trees and that this was the end of Mither and Boom. And it yeah. does look as though the, 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 in this attack, mm. it's the trees that burn. Yeah. The sacred, or the, the sort of the grove of well, sacred yes, trees the, on the hill, whatever yeah, you want yeah, to call them. Yeah. It's very odd though. But, yeah, but um, that was what, when it says they were burnt by man and on, it might refer to the trees rather than to Mither and Boomnook. Yeah. But yeah, it is this kind of revenge story that goes down through the generations. Yeah. And this time it's the killing of Yuckit. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's his uh, by Mither's grandson, so it's the other yeah, way around. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so they're all dead. They're all dead. <laughs> Everybody's dead. Or there are dead ancestors or in the other world. Exactly. End of story. <laughs> and we will put these alternate endings or some of the aftermath up on the, the codices. Yeah, all these codices. And uh, they do contain a lot of very important Dinhenicus and genealogical elements but it is rather convoluted now there are some pieces of poetry that we have kept till last and they really do deserve some discussion which is why we've kept them over till now yeah the first is an alternative version of the prophecy if you remember used to begin part two mm. uh, it's really nice piece of writing yeah that was the poem that was spoken by mither to yeah. aideen to tell her of her first life yeah. and her future destiny mm. um you know but this time, after he slept with her yeah. on the hill, when he's pretended to be Aril, yes. he calls her Befind and yeah. extols the virtues of this wonderful and magical other world yeah. to which she truly belongs. Yeah, yeah. It's gorgeous. And this is a poem that has been dated to the ninth century, which is older than most of the prose part of the text. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think that it's just great to read even in translations. So. Yeah, as a description of this wonderful other world, other world it's yeah. marvellous. Mm. A wondrous land is the land I tell of. Youth does not go there before the old. Warm sweet streams flow through the land, the choice of mead and wine, folk without blemish, conception without sin, without violation. We see everyone on every side, and no one sees us. It is the darkness of Adam's transgression that has prevented us from being counted. O oh, woman, if you come to my proud folk, a crown of gold shall be upon your head. Honey, wine, ale, fresh milk and drink you shall have with me there, O oh, Bayfind. Yeah. It's beautiful, but it's very important. It it's is. It's saying a lot. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And when we come to look at 
for film stories, mm. we'll be picking up these themes much more. But yeah. I think what really strikes me about that is this thing about the other world has no personal property, mm. no sin in sex. Yeah. That's really important. It is, and, and very clear. It's, it's very unambiguous. Um, and it particularly says this thing about original sin, Adam's transgression, and that that has not affected the people of the other world. No, they and are free of it. They're exactly. free of original sin. Yeah. Because it doesn't exist in mm. a pre-Christian world. Yeah. You know, we've, we've talked about this, the other world, there's no judgment. Mm, mm. You know, you get there. Yeah, and that's You know, that. that's your parallel life. Yeah. You're, it's not whether you deserve it. Mm. That's where you go. Yeah. That's what you do. It's a parallel life, so there's no original sin. Yeah. And no property. Yeah. And it's quite interesting. It says, we see everyone. Yeah. But they don't see us. Yes, exactly. And it's Adam's sin that has blinded people. Yeah, yeah. You know, existence. the Christians half blind yeah yeah i don't mean that literally that's what i'm saying yes, there exactly you know? yeah that's the message in the poem yeah, yeah but what's wrong with them mm, mm. they can't see the beauty yeah yeah and then you've got this brilliant idea of the um the other world on islands yes that it's sort of developed almost into being other worlds over the sea rather than under the ground mm. and now that might be a, i think we've touched on this before it might be this kind of sense that it's illogical to have a whole other world underground because mm. you can dig a hole and not find it. I think it's more that the, 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 the Christian sense of yeah. uh, death, destruction, mm. the eschatological Christian mm. view has left people going, yeah, it's just dust and ashes, yeah. dust to dust. Yeah. So yeah. now our knowledge that there is this other place yeah. which we all are part of mm. has to be off the coast. Yeah, has to be over it's the sea. It's the other unseen places. Yes. And so you get Mananan's Isle and all yeah. the rest of it. Yeah. But it's just, you know, this this split. Mm. This is what we've been taught. This is what we know. Yeah, yeah. And it, 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 I find it a really wonderful description. It is, yeah. And it's also where we get this sort of honorific title of Bayfind applied to Aideen. Um, now, again, in, in the article I wrote about Aideen and Eslu, there is a, a tempting kind of poetic echo between the character of Ethlu, also known as Bowen, mm -hmm. and Aideen, also known as Bayfind. Mm. There's, there's a, a rhyming quality to the names. And in fact, Bayfind means fair woman, and mm -hmm. Bowand is fair or white cow. And I think the Bay, particularly, is almost like an honorific form. I think it's usually used for the other world women. Mm -hmm. And it it almost feels as though Aideen, in her role as Bayfind, has a really important role in the other world. Mm -hmm. You know, that she's missing out on through her mortal lives. You know, that she really is more important than we know, in the same way that we don't have these other tales of Mither. It's almost like we've lost some of why Aideen is so important. Yeah, that Bayfind, when she comes into this world, mm -hmm. takes on a an Eslu or an Aedy, yeah, yeah. but in the other world she has a, 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 another world, right? Mm, it's mm. It very, well, there are missing things here, there are, yeah. and this may explain why when, when Fulmnock tries to get rid of what mm. seems like a mortal woman, yeah. she turns into not just a purple fly, yeah. but she has other world powers. Exactly, I mean, yeah. she has miraculous powers, mm, mm. and she is also, she keeps her beauty, yeah. the perfume, mm. the, the, the uh, healing powers, yeah, yeah, that are associated with this, uh, um, other world which is part of our own world yeah yeah and then suddenly we've got them at war yeah yeah which you can feel a tragedy in yes. this 
that uh, as this this poem that Mither speaks, mm. as it were, expresses the tragedy mm. of being at war with the other world. Exactly, yeah, yeah, and the loss that then the follows. loss that follows, yeah, yeah. and the separation mm. which is mourned by yeah. the storytellers. Yeah, yeah. And as I say, when we look at some of the stories of film, we'll see this again. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'm going on about it. I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful piece yeah, of poetry. Yeah, it it's gorgeous. Now, the other section of poetry is, if you like, the second of a pair of Ruskin's passages that are like work songs. They're said mm -hmm. to be what Mither's people were saying or chanting while they were building the trackway over Corley. Now, we did meet the first of these um, partly in the opening story and also then when we were describing how the text describes the trackway and how that matches up with the archaeology. Um, but I want to talk a bit about the language of these two mm. pieces. Because you feel that both of these pieces are not Yes, I feel that there's Not some separate. no, and that some um, commentators uh, or scholars might assume that it they're two versions of the same poem, mm. and that you know one might have, if you like, corrupt spelling or or something that was misheard or or you know misspelled or whatever. Um, I think that they do form a pair, and um, that it's in Rusk fashion one changes the meaning of the other yeah, yeah and so just to demonstrate this this will take i think a whole article i'll have to put up the two poems on the website and give you an inkling of how they translate but this particular kind of poetry is so difficult oh, but it's to render into english yeah but you know you you get so much meaning from a single line it's unbelievable but just to give you a flavor of how close yet different these two passages are. I'm just going to read the first two lines from each of them. Okay, so here's the first one, which starts Quidda alive, Tochra illive, Ardark Davrid. That's the first one. The second one begins Quirtha illand, Tochra illand, Arderg Davrid. Now, after that, the two poems are quite different. You know, you couldn't, after those two lines, you couldn't say one was a version of the other. Mm. Although there are common themes. Um, and what they seem to be is what you were describing as a sort of double vision. Mm -hmm. um, that on the one hand, you have the witnessing of this sort of miraculous construction. It's of, fairy work. Yeah, of, of mm. this sort of great mm. roadway being built. work. Yeah. Exactly. But on the other hand, underneath, if you like, there's a description of a band of people who are working themselves virtually to death to try and achieve this nigh-impossible task. Um, and in the second one in particular, it's it's a much darker picture. It, it comes out with lines like, you know, the woman must beware of the prominent man and the live must beware of a bloody end. And whereas in the first you have excellent oxen. Exactly, yeah. You know, in the second it's a red handed work yeah yeah you know, red-handed retinue I yes think it is. But yeah the, the work is bloody exactly and hard yeah yeah not just done by fine oxen yes exactly yeah. so you know this this is why i think they they have to be treated as separate poems but also as a pair and in that classic poetic way you get words that in you know a, a straightforward context have a meaning such as you know a retinue or a work band but a word like tukhra that's used in both of those first lines. Tukhra is also another term for a bride price. 
or mm-hmm. a wedding gift, as well as being a part of related to tucher, which is a word for the causeway itself. Mm. The words overlap mm. and overlap and mm. interweave mm. to a point where I think they make T.S. Eliot look simplistic. <laughs> but it's so exciting. It is, yeah. I tried to capture a little bit of that double mm. vision. The way I see it, it's like Jochid Stewart's mm. standing there and he sees this wonderful magical work mm. and yet at the same time almost as a shadow, yeah. he sees this bloody-handed struggle. Yeah, yeah. And it does capture, in essence, the story. It does, yeah. And this is why we're going on about it. Exactly. And and again, <clears> why <throat> we are saying that it is central. It's, it, it feels mm. like the core of the story as a whole, mm. you know, because it's in this very dense language that does refer all the time to other parts mm. of the story in terms of the bride price and, and yeah. you know, the, the relationship between women and men. You know, all those yeah. things are all there. And how deep and rich these texts oh, yeah. are yeah. Uh, when you can have a chance to really get into them, which, yeah. uh, thanks to Isolde, we, we, you know, we yeah. can. But yeah. it's just such, it's just it so is. interesting. Yeah. So I'm sorry if we sound so, <laughs> this is a bit obscure, but we thought for once it was worth actually just yeah. looking at the language directly. Yeah. And this is some serious story archaeological um, evidence right here. Yeah, which is why I'm particularly interested in yeah, this one. Yeah. So, bear with it. It's, it's <laughs> you know, if I can understand it, it's not impossible to understand. <laughs> but you know, it's it's quite complex yes, linguistically. Yeah. So we hope for a re- an interesting article from, <laughs> from Isolde that yeah. will explain it. Also, I love to hear Isolde speaking the earlier yeah. as well. I will make a recording of each of the poems in full to go along with the article, so you can hear the whole thing and hear how. The language echoes and picks up on yeah. other parts. Just how rich the sound mm. of the language is. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's go back. Having that, it's not a diversion. That's mm. central, but at the same time, it it, it can get a bit distracting. Yeah, <laughs> it gets a bit involving. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose we ought to look at the three parts of the story. Mm. Isn't? There has been a strong thematic thread about right judgment and law. Yes, yeah. I mean, there's law concerning property. Yeah, there is, such as when um, Oingus was negotiating Aideen's first bride price and uh, her father made that comment that all of the improvements to the land would only benefit Aideen's kin. And so he needed the gold and silver for himself, if you like, as his compensation. And then there was law concerning injury and damage. Yes. Remember um, Mither's Eye. Eye. Yeah, exactly. And which then also kind of covers, it's known as Uthrus uh, Mm -hmm. in the early Irish laws, which has to do with who has responsibility for different kinds of injury, what the compensation would be. Um, but then also uh, how oh, sick lying exactly also the sick lying yeah, yeah which is you know how to look after uh, someone who's been injured or taken ill and whose responsibility that is and of course the obvious ones more obvious ones like laws of marriage yeah. and uh, bride price exactly yeah which comes up again and again and that business of you know with the, although it's great slightly that <laughs> thing of you know selling a girl which as we've said is in a way protecting her rights exactly yeah it's all about making things again like you say legal right Mm. proper and then the very interesting one Mm -hmm. uh, the laws concerning the rights of senior and junior wives exactly yeah all that business where the cave winter is allowed to inflict non-fatal injury (laughs) on uh, on a junior wife for the first three days you know which which is exactly what happens again Fumnuk is within her rights And, and as we We've mentioned that though it's connected laws of cares of the sick we've yeah. mentioned the the sick lying yeah although there was even that curious stuff about how aideen had to prepare for al's funeral like get his 
grave dug and his oh, lament composed yeah. and the cattle now that is weird i had a look at it it could be the cattle sent out so distributed among okay so it doesn't necessarily mean slaughtered exactly yeah it might have been a mistranslation well yeah it might have been but i'm i I wouldn't say for certain but yeah but there is that business but deal with his worldly goods exactly yeah yeah yeah. and make sure that he's properly commemorated as well after all that yeah can any of these lords tell us who has the right and proper claim to ad i don't think so <laughs> but hers is an unusual case, you well, know. Irish law was not generally set up to deal with reincarnation. Well, maybe this is the point. <laughs> if you thought that the story has sort of set out several extreme legal what ifs, yeah, Are you sure the story, the whole of the story, isn't a kind of legal thought experiment? Well, I think that there is an element of that. I mean, we came across this in Moitura as well, mm. over and over again. It's it's a sort of inflated or. Uh, exacerbated version of the sorts of uh, disputes and issues that would affect people of the time in their everyday lives. You can answer that. But what if this happens? Exactly, yeah. Oh, okay, you've got an answer for that. But what if it was like this? Yeah. But Getting that, more and more extreme. Exactly. But I mean, that is also a common sort of philosophical tool, you mm. know, which is to, to um, take the way things are now and extend them logically mm-hmm. and see what the ultimate consequence is and is that still right you know mm-hmm. that is core. it's a good legal practice it is and it's kind yeah. of central to moral philosophy it I also think. reminds me a little bit of you know, about moral philosophy greek mm. theater oh yes where i mean uh, originally greek theater was designed to assist the process of democracy yeah. and teach ordinary people mm. the sort of options they might have yes. to make decisions in certain circumstances yes, yeah and of course you know the sort of the very tragic ones where you go you know would you have made this decision is there a right decision to make mm-hmm. you know it's yeah i think it's very much that kind of so purpose. have we got here irish mythology playing out possibilities and consequences mm-hmm. of law and social structure i i think that's really quite central to it and you know we like i say we did find that with moisture as well that mm-hmm. this seemed to be very much at the heart of what is generally termed the mythological mm. cycle and that would fit in with the storyteller's role yeah you know the mm. poet the storyteller yeah who is the guardian of law yeah l-o-r-e as well as a-r-l-a-w yeah uh, it's interesting there's mm. no difference in the at this time in that sense yeah yeah um yeah so i suppose really that myths if they're going to re- reflect the what ifs yeah of contemporary life um, I suppose, in a way, it's like science fiction works today, or yeah. good science good fiction. Science good fiction. science exactly. fiction, exactly, yeah. I'm, certainly, I think <clears throat> that all good science fiction is a kind of you know, reflection of modern uh, or contemporary socio-political issues. That in many ways, that's its main purpose, yeah. to yeah. take um, issues of the day yeah. and put them in an unfamiliar setting, exactly. so to show up the possibilities yeah. within them and of course that's now so visible with like the original series of star trek and you look at it and you look at it in the context of the cold war and you go yeah of course it's bloody obvious you know but that yeah, wasn't really good star trek we were talking about good science <laughs> i know <fiction>. sorry <laughs> no no some actually some of it is yeah but, yeah know. but that that is part of what yeah. speculative fiction is about and i think that these fit in to that mm. as a genre so we can see them as speculative fiction uh-huh <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, laced into them, of course, as well, are, are a wide variety of Dentianicus elements. Yes, and, and the genealogies. genealogies. And uh, that's very much about telling people who they are and where they are and how they fit in to their sort of both temporal and spatial landscapes, you know, and that, that's mm. something that we've been examining throughout this series, obviously. But that is very much a part of them as well, that that's part of why it's meaningful to mm. the audience mm. and why the stories need to be told again and again, you know, is because and why they always have an audience. Exactly, yeah. Because they construct your identity. And I think they still do. Yeah. You know? But I still have one more question. <laughs> of course. Have we come to any real understanding of who Aideen actually is. I or mean, we've, Mither for that matter. Well, right. We've seen how the mythological character of Mither, who began by needing the ancient earth-moving powers of the Dagda mm. to achieve impossible tasks, uh, we've seen how he's become an almost sort of Tolkien-esque elf lord. Yeah. Now, he's not an elf. No. No, no, no Irish elves. elves. No, no elves. No. But he has become the king of the Shi. Yes. Yeah. And is. a man of great power. Mm. And likewise, uh, Aideen, we can see through this title of Bay Finn and her connection with a character such as Eslu as well, which, you know, this story does tell us that they have things in common and they have partly that ability to step into a story and change things around and then step back out again. So part of her role is to be mysterious. I think you, you can imagine her as a sort of a, a this, queen of the she. But they're sort of interchangeable types, these Ethelins yeah. aren't they? Yeah. They doesn't make the women themselves insignificant in any way. Certainly not, no. But they do... It means they can step in and out. And with Aideen, you see this particularly because every time she herself is born, she's always called Aideen. And what's more, her daughter is also called Aideen. And every time they step in, yeah. they make changes exactly. and change perspectives. Yeah, yeah. But then step out again. And as we commented before with an Ethlu, if you have an Ethlu, then she's going to come in, she's going to conceive, possibly give birth, but she's not going to have anything to do with the raising of the child. And that's true of Aideen either. Yeah. Uh, she lets go of this daughter yeah, yeah. without a second thought. Yeah. Because they're all really one. They're exactly, all the, because they're, they're all, all her. They're yeah. all kernels. They're yeah. all nuts. Mm -hmm. No, they're all nuts. Yeah, really. they are. <laughs> <laughs> they're all seeds. Yeah, exactly. That's better. Yeah. And I suppose if we were to sum up the whole story, it, it's really about the contrast and balance between that which is seen and that which is imagined. Yes. And this unseen world, which is both highly alluring mm. and yet threatening. Yeah. But it's always subject it, yeah. to the law. And to core of that to rightness, proper the exactly. rightness of things. Yes. Yeah. Well, have we achieved something? Uh, let's hope so. Let's say <laughs> we've achieved a balance and a rightness <laughs> and a little bit of core. Yes. Thank you for listening to Ogilvy Nanagas conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com